1: Welcome to the latest edition of The Times' Opinion Podcast. My name is Tim Montgomery, editor of The Times' Opinion Pages. And this week, I'm joined by parliamentary sketch writer Anne Treneman and two of our columnists, Danny Finkelstein and David Aronovich.
2: The coalition government appears to be utterly hopeless at counteracting Ed Miliband's idea that the energy market should become properly regulated. This week, we had yet another lame attempt to lower bills, which, as anyone who listened to Ed Davies' statement in the House... On Monday, knows won't be lower at all, only less high. And even that isn't for sure. How can the government get back on the front foot when it comes to energy bills?
3: Was Boris right to say that greed can be useful? Yes, I think he was. Capitalism is accused of making people greedy. But this is a misunderstanding. People are naturally acquisitive. What capitalism does is to turn that instinct into something that can serve a useful social purpose.
4: Rod Liddle has written in The Spectator that the grieve apology for associating the Pakistani community with corruption is just one more example of things Brits are not allowed to say. He then goes on to mention several things you're not allowed to say, most of which I hear said a lot, and some of which I've written myself. However, he's missed a few. For example... You may not say that something is anti Semitic without being accused of oversensitivity, or that anyone in the immigration debate is ever motivated by racism or xenophobia, even when they are.
1: So, Anne Treneman, let's start with you and. We are preparing this podcast before the autumn statement when Mm. we may get more action from the Chancellor on the cost of living. But the big cost of living issue has been energy bills ever since Ed Miliband put the uh, price freeze at the heart of his party conference speech. And we've had what we think is the main card played by the government, a £50 discount on energy bills, but you're not persuaded by it.
2: Well, I mean, it is really impossible... I mean, it is a complete mess, really. £50 is coming off, but it's actually probably most of it's going on in another way. It's green levies, basically. So they're taking those off the actual bill.
1: And replacing it with general taxation.
2: I've, well, in most cases. And, I, mean, he, yesterday, I mean, his speech yesterday was really uh, sort of a tangle of ideas, including it, at it, some a Davy, point... A yeah, speech. At some point, the National Grid is giving us all £5 back. I mean, £5 a year. Whoopee. I mean I think it's kind of mad. And what I can't understand is why no one can sort of – in the government, they clearly believe bills are too high. They clearly believe that profits are too high and yet they will not tackle it. They will not actually sort of get a grip on it. Instead, we've had all of this flapping around. Uh, flapping may not be a word but I'm making it up yeah. at the moment. <laughs> And it's quite frustrating to watch, uh, it has to be said, especially as someone who, you know, when you watch your own direct debit going sky high.
1: Danny Finkelstein, do do you you buy this idea that the government is sort of reactive and flapping um, (laughs) around? Because two, two years ago, we knew from opinion polls that the two big issues that the public were worried about weren't cuts. It was the cost of petrol in their car and the cost of heating their own homes. And it did seem to take Robert Halfon's backbench campaign on... Petrol duty, and then Ed Miliband's party conference speech to get the coalition to act.
3: Yeah, I'm not surprised by this. I mean, when I go uh, to uh, a cafe, I'm li- I like quite like the breakfast, and I'm usually against the bill. Um, and of course, people are. Um you know, they don't want prices to come down, but that doesn't mean they easily can. The thing is, it's very difficult when you're in opposition, to be fair to the Labour, uh, to get policies that have credibility to develop them. And they rather inventively got one that most people think is credible. Whether it actually is or not is a different question, but they got over that barrier. Then the problem becomes the governments, because they have to actually do something about it. In other words, they actually have to lower a bill to pay for something that people are buying at the price which is set by international markets. It's not surprising to me they can't take very much money off it. Or if, the, if they do take money off it, they have to charge it to you in a different form because the cost of energy doesn't disappear into the air.
1: But they could do something very simple. At the moment, there's huge subsidies going into the renewable industry to fight... Uh, climate change, supposedly, but actually China, India, the rest of the world, they are emitting more than ever. So what we are doing is we are imposing bills on British pensioners and British industry, which they cannot afford to pay to fight global warming and completely failing to fight global warming in the absence of an international agreement. Why doesn't the Conservatives say this and stand up to the Liberal Democrats and say this is how you cut energy bills?
3: Well, two reasons. One is, first of all, I should say, I do actually agree with the thrust of that. In other words, I do think the climate uh, change policy we've ad- adopted is like sort of trying to plane, uh, to plane down a tree to make a cocktail stick and it's being paid for by people. It's not going to have any effect on climate change and therefore it's a waste uh, in order to, to sound good. Uh, but the first problem is the Conservative Party was elected saying that it would do something about those things. Um, so it doesn't actually have a distinctive edge from the Liberal Democrats. Whether it should have said that is another matter. And secondly, the Liberal De- they're in a coalition and this is a central policy for the Liberal Democrats and they won't let them. And of course it's the case that if you, that you could cut energy bills to some degree by doing this. Um, but but obviously incidentally that's not Labour's plan. I mean Labour says that you can cut um, energy bills without doing it which is I think fantastical
2: Labour's plan is to frighten the energy companies Labour's plan is to freeze and to reorganise the market and the Conservatives are doing all the stuff around the edges and last night or yesterday all the um, backbenchers were, were all the uh, the Europhobes were saying get VAT off them you know go against the EU on that so the it, there is a lot of pressure building up here. Everyone knows that the market is somehow wrong, but no one is willing to tackle it on the Tory side. We have
3: the lowest energy bills in Europe, so I don't. I, what what, what we, we have to live with the fact that. We use a lot of energy, and it's very expensive. And the, 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 you can't just magic it. Uh, we have, we have the screen-
1: lowest energy cost, but we have some of the least efficient homes. So we have cheaper energy going in, but we need more of it. I think is the uh, I think is the problem. David Aronovich, what well, do you I think make the only of the person
4: here who supports Cameron's original idea that Britain making a contribution to the reduction of global warming was a good idea? Uh, not just a good, partially a good idea out of example, which is how on earth can you expect these uh, uh, newly developing countries to do anything if you're not prepared to do something yourself? The second question was whether or not you could significantly help to build up an indigenous uh, renewables uh, uh, industry in this country, which could then take advantage of the fact that sooner or later, Tim, these countries will have to do something. Do you know that? I mean, do you actually get that? Sooner or later... Aren't they are we, going to have to do something and, and they are and they are getting to that point. So actually, I completely support green levies. And as Danny says, green levies is not a very big part of the bill. So what's now happening is that everybody's looking at the energy bill, which they say is too high. Is it really? Actually, I wonder. And then, hold on, hold on, and then saying which bit of this fits in with my ideological preconception so that I can cut it in my own particular... Well, fine, then. you tell me your ideological preconception for cutting the bills. Presumably with you, it's the nasty, over-profitable energy companies. For Danny, for Tim, it's the nasty green levy. For somebody else, it's the nasty... EU VAT
3: no, levy. I, I mean, by the way, I wasn't, Daniel Finkelstein. I, I wasn't um, arguing that there's a massive amount that you can do about it. The, the problem I've got with the uh, climate change policy, by the way, is not that I think that climate change isn't happening or that we shouldn't do something about it. But I don't think it is very effective. Uh, and I don't think it's going to help climate change very much. I'd be I'd be in favour of it if I thought um, that this policy was, was going to produce benefits that That have some sort of proportional relationship with cost, but I don't. But I, but I actually I don't think that is the issue. I think in the end, the issue with with the whole of the cost of living debate is that the cost of living is related to how well off we are as a country and how much things cost. And you can't you cannot write a check to yourself and make yourself richer and. Unfortunately, that, that very seductive idea pops up from time to time, and it's popping, popping up again at the moment, but it, but it is ultimately a
1: delusion. Um, could we end with on your topic, and with, with you? <laughs> um, because just the raw politics of this is the Liberal Democrats have had a success, haven't they, in a sense? Because it's clear, rightly or wrongly, that the Conservatives wanted to roll back the Green C-R-A-P, to use David Cameron's rem- reported yes. remarks. But he hasn't. Which has he's, now become a parliamentary he, He's word. slightly delayed some of the home insulation projects. But actually, all of the investment in renewable and green industry, the Liberal Democrats have protected it. And therefore, this is a another Liberal Democrat win.
2: Well, I think yeah, the Lib Dems have definitely held their corner on this. And, you know, the green levies are being transferred. They're not being... Removed and then they're doing, as you say, they're expanding the program to make it two years longer for the insulation, et cetera, et cetera. So yes, they've won, but I think that in terms of the government, they are flailing in terms of trying to counteract this very simple idea, which is that which Ed Miliband has really caught the public imagination with, which is that the bills need to be lower. And you got everyone in this room is arguing about the reasons and ideology and everything, but. I think that people really think it's a very simple idea that the bills need to be lower this just uh, a, just, a repli-
3: just a reply uh, to, 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 the, to the word another <laughs> liberal Democrat win because I think it 's very important because <laughs> I think it's important to understand how a coalition works broadly speaking, the majority party will set the overall direction, and the minority party will intervene to get to, to veto things that it really can't live with. And, and then therefore, it will have specific things that you can point to as wins within the context of an overall government direction that's not set by them. And that's obviously the case with here. So the idea that, that it should be established that the Liberal Democrats are constantly setting the overall policy of the government, I think, isn't true.
1: OK. Well, let's move on to what is your nominated topic, uh, Danny, which was the big Boris Johnson speech, which... Um, From my impression, not that many people read before they commented upon it. But um, that's not an unusual thing. You want to focus, and this is the subject of your column in Wednesday's Times, about what he said about greed and the social benefits of self-interested behaviour.
3: So what he said was that greed... And envy can be a spur to useful ac- uh, economic activity. He didn't, by the way, say you know as some people have characterised him that therefore all economic activity was greed. Um, and there were a lot of other things he didn't say. Um, some people accused him of eugenics, and um, and other people suggested that because he was observing that some people were uh, had more raw ability than others, he was therefore suggesting that people who had less raw ability should be I don't know left
1: on their doorstep. So I don't know exactly what people. He yes, he, he argued that social mobility exactly. should become the central mission of
3: politics. Precise point of. Making his point was an argument but I, I can see why even if you read the speech it' was occasionally a bit messy actually and I can see how you might have lost the thread of it nevertheless that is to lose the thread of it that the point I'm interested in is whether or not and it's a common point that capitalism basically encourages greed and um, what I want to write about this week And what I'm writing about this week is to say that is a misunderstanding. What capitalism does is take the natural acquisitive instincts of individuals and try its best to turn those to socially good ends. Now, it's it's true that it doesn't always happen. So, therefore, some people show greed and uh, acquisitiveness. And what they do fails and it doesn't help other people. It only helps them. But in, but in general, the advantage of capitalism uh, is that while greed and acquisitiveness is shown in all circumstances, which is the reason why you never meet a poor dictator um, – you know, who doesn't have gold bath taps, um, you uh, nevertheless, what capitalism does is it tries to set a framework of law, which turns that greed, as Boris suggested, into a spur f- to useful
1: activity. You're looking like uh, this should be a television uh, televised podcast, David, because you look like you're about to erupt. Uh, this no,
4: no, I'm not, I'm, to... <laughs> not, I'm not
1: about to. erupt. I mean, uh, in...
0: when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do
4: is second guess the ring.
0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
4: Insofar as I can understand what Dan is saying... <laughs> it, no, no. It, seem, it seems absolutely obvious to me. I mean, it's not a it, – it, it's not it, – uh, but the, the one thing I was interested in, the way in which he was talking, was he was ascribing to capitalism, uh, i.e. The, a system based on, uh, uh, on private ownership and acquisition, characteristics that belong to actually a variant of capitalism, i.e. the, cap, the sort of capitalism that we operate in the developed Western world. Capitalism doesn't seek – of itself to do anything for social good. It's not, that's, that's it doesn't have an objective. Um, we might add at different stages of society as a kind of uh, as a kind of addition, forms of regulation and so on, okay. which we, and we might say they make capitalism work better but what we actually mean is that this is what, this is, this is the way we can make it work best for us as I'm a genuinely
3: relieved because for a minute I thought you had, you, you, it was so obvious and you had understood it but fortunately you didn't, you haven't understood my <laughs> argument which means I've still got something to write about. The, 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 what I mean by it is that, is that um, for example, you can't acquire something um, unless you provide somebody with a socially useful service. It, it's, it's, it's innate to capitalism that basically uh, it's about exchange. In other words, you exchange the goods you acquire in return for doing something useful for another person. Right? You can't just appropriate it. That's, as as that, Adam Smith
1: said, it is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the baker, or the brewer that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own interest. That's very well
3: put.
4: I see. Yeah, in that case, you are going to have to put it in that better way than uh, in your column (laughs) when you actually spoke it, because you seem to be suggesting that capitalism, in and of itself, was concerned with the social good and it's not I and actually you, you're very interested in the period, you, you wrote very well about uh, Doris Cairns Goodwin's book about uh, Roosevelt and Taft uh, the point that you made uh, there and that she makes as well was that one of the things that made Roosevelt and Taft necessary was the capacity they had to tame what had become a form of capitalism in the late 19th century in America which was actually operating in such a rampant way that it wasn't operating as a social good.
2: I want to bring Anne Treneman in. At this well, I don't think point. I'm quite on their level here because to me, um, greed is negative. Um, I've never heard a politician be uh, make a speech on greed and make it work. I think most people, when they see greediness... Whether it's someone eating two plates of food or whether it's someone getting way, way, way too much money, huge bonuses while other people in the company aren't doing so well or just that whole thing. I think people do not like it. And I think the other interesting thing is that Danny moves that into natural acquisitiveness. And again, I would argue against that. I think people have lots of motivations in life. Many people want to be secure, um, I think if if any of us were really had natural inquisitiveness, we wouldn't be sitting in this room because journalism is not the best way to become have lots of stuff in life, um, you know. So it's I think that, that I don't think I could have made any more money doing anything else. <laughs> we Actually. don't
4: not know. Re- not, no, not realistically, not anything that I could
1: do. But but Anne, Boris, what Boris seemed to try and do in this speech was he was trying to claim that greed had benefits, and he was saying that the rich. We may not like them, but they pay a lot of tax. Well, this they is employ, employ a lot of people. And also, he wanted to challenge them. This was one of his big themes of his speech, that the rich should give more away to charity yeah. as well. And clearly... He failed for most people in re- making another attempt to say greed has social benefits. Well, this
2: is one of the Boris's campaigns. And, you know, I've definitely heard it made uh, lesser versions of this speech for the past three or four years at party conference, which is, you know, during the height of kind of the anti-banker thing, he was like, actually, bankers provide a really good service. And also, why don't bankers give more away? So it's kind of interesting. He's saying, in a way, greed is good, but giving is good too. So <laughs> acquire a lot to give it away. Um, and I think that it's he, he. Well, Boris loves to be a controversialist. I mean, that's what he loves more than anything. He loves to make a fuss. Mm. And I think he's just sort of slightly upped the ante here. I think he.
3: I think he's saying, and I think he's not wrong, that if that if uh, people you know, entrepreneurial people decided they didn't want to acquire more goods. Um, one consequence would be that you would look at them and think you're not acquiring more goods. That's very nice. Another consequence of it would be they'd create less and make less. And the result of it would be uh, not just they would be impoverished by it. And um, that is correct. I, You know, there is th- there is a, there is, a th- there is obviously a case that if you've got a, a plate full of food and you're sharing it with a number of people um, and somebody takes more than their fair share you you would call you might call that greedy um, and unfair but it's but the, the thing is it's not a set plate right you you're the the um, the act of trying to have more can also represent itself in trying to create more cake
4: i i hope you notice <laughs> how many
3: food metaphors, <laughs>
4: Darius, because them. of greed. I mean, it's because we are
1: talking about greed. No, no, that's no, food metaphor, no, no, but
4: also in the previous discussion as it happens.
1: <laughs> anyway, we're, we're, gonna anyway we're,
4: we're hungry, Tim. We're yeah. hungry. <laughs> All this
1: talk of food which has become a uh, culinary um, podcast but um, we have to move on so we we'll see if we can get some food uh, analogies into our third and final topic which is yours, uh, David. And uh, on the cover of this uh, latest edition of The Spectator we have Rod little talking about the things that politicians are not allowed to say and uh, in your introductory remarks you said you have been saying them for some time
4: quite a few of them yes I mean um, for for instance take one of the things that uh, Rod refers to which is the child grooming cases in uh, uh, in Rochdale and elsewhere well we have been writing about those things and pretty successfully and so much so now that it is true and, and here's the point which we, which we come to, that you can enter through – a re, you have to pass through a reluctance barrier uh, to discuss certain things, partially because of the way in which they've been discussed in the past. And this is the thing that Rod doesn't actually give any kind of uh, credit to. One of the reasons why you might be reluctant to attribute a negative characteristic even if sort of, you know, with caveats to a whole community, is because we know cases in the past where negative characteristics have been attributed to whole communities in such ways that have been incredibly negative for those members of the community who don't hold any of those characteristics, never had, never will, and who, in Rod's terms, assimilate very well. So insofar as there can be a reluctance to use an extraordinarily kind of broad brush, I don't think that's surprising. Nevertheless, he's partially right that there's a part inhibition, But the other thing I found interesting were the things that he didn't mention. You cannot now, from my kind of position, enter into the so-called debate about immigration. You remember the debate that we're never allowed to have and that we've been having non-stop for over a decade now. You are not allowed to say even mention or suggest that anybody in this debate is motivated by racism. You just can't say it. If you say it, the moment you do is you people will say, you're just trying to close down debate, you're just a lefty liberal type. It's amazing how people who are worried about being closed down themselves close down other people in a discussion, particularly, I mean, the left accuses the right of doing it, and the right accuses the left of doing it, of course, they both do it, uh, uh, and so on. Uh, and the other one that uh, uh, interests me is the way in which, for instance, the making of the word zionist which is the jewish desire for a national home into effectively a complete non use word you almost cannot allow that to be a zionist is to be and this is left or right is to be a decent human being outside uh, jewish community circles and you also may not accuse somebody who actually is being anti-semitic in some circles of being anti-semitic if the reason for their anti-Semitic or, the, they, or if they approximate their anti-Semitic sentiment to something that's also anti-Israel. And this is partially because some pro-Israeli people have used anti-Semitism wrongly in the past.
1: Anne yeah. Treneman.
2: Well, I mean, I'm very interested in this because, of course, I sit on many debates about immigration and um, I am an immigrant – and you can see the horror in their faces um, if I'm sitting around talking to people, and all of a sudden they say, "Well, it's funny you should say this all this about immigration because I'm an immigrant," and they look at me, and you can just see in their mind what they're saying is, "I don't mean your kind of immigrant. <laughs> I don't mean an American white person." Um, you know, they, and so you immediately enter this sort of miasma of. Uh, really definition, where we're all talking about immigration, but what we're really talking about is people who aren't like us. It's kind of the the way they would phrase the debate. I think that's the way the Daily Mail would phrase the debate. Um, I don't know. Anyway, so I find that quite interesting. In my experience, the world is full of stuff that you're not allowed to say. (laughs) And, you know, it's kind of my job and and it's kind of our job to say it, you know, but – Daniel well, Finkelstein. I'm not sure.
3: I'm not sure. I think it is. I mean, uh, you know, Rod Little says it. I um, mean, Rod Lidl's, How many more columns does Rod Little want in order to be able to not to not be able to say <laughs> anything? Um, so, so, so you know, seems it's very uh, prolific uh, to me. I, I I don't think that's true. But I think what is true is that so, uh, there are things that are rightly quite sensitive topics. And actually, Boris illustrated one of those, which was you know people's differing uh, abilities and IQ and but. One of the reasons why this is a difficult topic is it's quite complicated and it's very easy to say something the crude that is untrue or sweeping that is untrue and people are on their guard about it. I would say I think it is true that people do immediately leap up to sometimes criticize things without reading them or thinking them through properly. And I experienced that with William Hague when he made a speech on um, asylum, which I was – very involved in the first uh, draft of the, fir- the first drafting of his first speech on asylum, and the Independent had a cartoon with William's face on the train going to Auschwitz, which I found very offensive um, uh, as a cartoon um, and as a characterization of, of what he'd been saying. And they couldn't have
4: read the speech; it was just merely the fact yeah, that he was saying it. That's, that that's a really important David point. The, the problem was that that fitted into a context in which The Express and The Mail in particular were running campaigns against asylum seekers which were absolutely virulent. And so, in a way, the cartoonist imagines himself to be not in battle so much just with William Hague but with everybody if you like associated with the the kind of prevalent mood. It's a sort of embattled kind of notion in which he reaches for a monstrous exaggeration in order to sort of make a point about his own, almost about his own vulnerability. It
3: does mean that, you know, so there are occasions where you you know that it's going to be hard to avoid misunderstanding, but I don't think it's quite true that you can't say those things. I think you can, but you have to take a lot of care, uh, you know, and, and I'm contemplating the subject of greed and writing about it. You have to take a lot of care when you to unpack that idea carefully so that people... Sort of allow the point that you're making in through the door. You know, uh, I've always, I was once amazed that somebody wrote a piece saying yes, the Tory Party is the nasty party, and that's a good thing. And I think even Matthews once, Matthew Paris has once written that. And I I sort of thought per- perhaps as he hovered over the keyboard as he wrote that sentence, he might have wondered whether that could really be true. You know, uh, so <coughs> when you do say some of these things, you just have to be very careful and it is true that people don't always read it carefully and they leap to assumptions and therefore you find yourself accused of things that you haven't actually said um, or become proxy
1: for other people that's true okay i'm afraid we have run out of time for another edition of this uh, did you read uh podcast Thank you to Danny, Anne and David for being my guests this week and for to David Maguire, who is uh, producing this podcast. Some of the articles that we've been discussing, Times subscribers can access at thetimes.co.uk slash commentcentral. And please do subscribe via iTunes so you never miss an edition. Thank you for listening.